0: We are in week five of our current sermon series called We Believe, it's a study on the Nicene Creed, which sounds a little bit strange, and from a a preparation standpoint, it has been difficult to to dip into this kind of stuff. And very early on, Josh Revel and I were talking, and he said there's gonna be a danger in bordering on lecture-type material. And this evening, friends, this evening, I'm going to introduce you to some words and some terms that will no doubt impress your friends, okay? Now, that's not the point, but we're going we're gonna to get into some stuff a little bit. But before we do, I want to uh, take a step back and, and walk through some of the things that we have been learning together as a group. The Nicene Creed was a document that was written in between 325 CE and 381 CE. And as we'll talk about, this was a document that was trying to establish the core tenets of the Christian faith the things that the Orthodox Christian church were united in their belief. And the first week we talked about just those first two words, we believe. And oftentimes within the church, we have walls built up between the church down the street or Christians that are a part of this group or that group. And we have barriers between us and them. And we want to do our part at least to begin to kick those bricks over, to begin to demolish some of those walls that separate us from other believers as we stand and unite and say together that we believe in these things. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. We talked about God as Father and the metaphors that are used there, and we didn't want to limit God to that, but we wanted God to be seen as a protector and provider, but also a sustainer and a nurturer and one who is present for you and with you and one who cares about you, one who has made the heavens and the earth. That was probably one of my favorite talks in a long time because it was something that opens up the door. Notice the creed does not say how God created. The creed says that God created. And one of my big motivations in ministry and in life is finding people on the margins and the outskirts that have difficulty accepting Christianity because of something that they were sold perhaps early on in their boxes, very, very small and limited, and be able to say there might be room, more room for you at the table than you had once thought. So we talked about God as the Father and God as the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And this week we're going to talk about the fact that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. This creed, it pretty much focuses on the person and the identity of Jesus because this was the thing that people were struggling with in this time period. Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, kind of flipped things on its head and people were struggling to figure out who it is that he was, and how to talk about his identity. And even within this very philosophical understanding of of Jesus as begotten and not made, and true God from true God, and all these things, there's difficulty in us grasping what that means. One scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, says this about this section in the creed. He says, for most Christians, this is the least comprehensible part of the creed. Many of those reciting these words every Sunday do not understand what the words mean. And those who question the value of the creed as such find their best ammunition in this section because it seems to focus on abstract philosophical questions rather than on the concrete facts of salvation. Now, there's a comedian who says, at times you tell a joke and you can narrow the room down to one or two people. And I know that with this illustration, I have narrowed the room down to one or maybe two people that have ever heard of either one of these bands. When I was in the early 2000s in college, I, used to, I was in a phase, classic Bible college student going through their phases, you all know this. I was in a screamo band, I played the electric guitar. I had my ears pierced, I had my face pierced, but I was still wearing like khaki shorts and a polo shirt. I was blending the best of both worlds together. But there were certain bands that just like, when their records came out, it was awesome. And this was in the, in the, in the time period of the, I will say this, I could be wrong on this, but what I would deem to be the birth of the emo movement I've really whittled the room down to a handful of you, but you, you can follow us, okay? So these two bands, Brand New and Taking Back Sunday, they both released their first albums within a few weeks, maybe a month of each other. It was very close in time, and I remember listening to these records just being entranced by them, and it wasn't until I understood the story behind them that they became alive. You see, what happened was the bass player of Taking Back Sunday had a girlfriend and the lead singer of Taking Back Sunday took that girlfriend, bass player gets ticked, bass player leaves and starts brand new, and they start writing songs about how terrible each other are. And these, both of these albums are just like these anthems against the other person. And it wasn't until I understood this that these records came to life. I see eyes looking at me like, bro, what, what are you talking about? There's a story behind these records that allows us to understand what's going on. There's a context here. And when we're understanding, the tie, when we're understanding the Nicene Creed, it's a lot like these emo bands in the early 2000s. There's a context there where it's not just like distracts, tracks, but it is, the creed is reacting to other people at this time that were struggling to identify who Jesus was. There was a problem within the early church of narrowing down the person and the work of Jesus. As I mentioned, he turns everything on its head, and it was difficult to really encapsulate who he was, and this introduced a lot of heresies within the early church. A heresy is basically a teaching that has become viewed as completely incorrect and caused people to be in a sense, booted out of the church. One of those heresies is known as the Arian heresy. There was a guy named Arius who was writing in the fourth century, and what he said about Jesus was, "Eh, Jesus is sort of God, but he's not quite as much of a God as God the Father. He's a little bit less than that. So for Arius and for his followers, they said Jesus was an important person, but he wasn't quite as much as God, as God the Father is. Now, here's some 20-cent words. And again, ladies, if you're at a party and you need an out from the guy who is pursuing you, you say, what's your take on ontological subordinationism? And immediately, I kid you not, that person will leave you alone unless he happens to be an early church history scholar, in which case, as I've mentioned to you before, maybe take a chance. You you never know. Ontological subordinationism is this idea of, of Arius where he's saying that the Father is more divine than Jesus in the very core of their being. That term ontological means who they are at the very core of themselves. Jesus as the Son is begotten from the Father, so the technical terms that scholars like to use is the Father generates The Son, you can think of in some ways begetting the Son, and as a result, the Father is greater than the Son. There's a hierarchical structure here where God the Father is here and Jesus is something less than that at the very core of their being. This is heretical and deemed so by the early church. There's another form of subordinationism that Arius taught, if it wasn't ontological, where at the very core of their being, God the Father was greater than Jesus, who was a little less than. Now, he would still say that Jesus is sort of God. He's better than the angels, and he's certainly better than us, but he's not quite like his, his dad. There's another form called chronological subordinationism, and I think this one will make a little bit more sense to you. Again, ladies, if the guy passes the first test, then throw him the chronological subordinationism just to see… His opinions on things. Okay. So, in this idea, the Father exists and has existed from eternity past. I don't like the fact that there's a line here that goes down to the Father because it looks as if God the Father begins at a certain point in time. I put that line there, and I don't know why I did, but it's there nonetheless. God the Father, in this scheme, according to Arius has existed from all time. He's eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end. And Jesus, however, is born or created or begotten or whatever language you want to use, and you can see here the time frame. It could be anywhere from 10, what is that, math scholars? 10 billion? That's a, lo- a long time. It, it, the point is, it doesn't matter how you understand the age of the earth, okay? What he's saying is, look, Jesus was created, and whatever that means for Arius, at at least one year or one day or whatever before the creation of the world. For Arius, it wasn't. They weren't having young earth, old earth discussions at this point in time. That's not the the issue for him. Jesus, for Arius, was created or begotten or whatever at some point before the creation of the world. There was a time when the sun was not. Early forms of this creed in 325 CE, I'm really nerding out up here and just just hang with me, would even go this far to say anyone who thinks that there was a time when Jesus was not, they are anathema. They are cursed. They are excommunicated. They are thrown out. They are heretical. So for Arius, he believed that this was going on and the father is greater than the son. This is also Heretical. This is the context, much like when you're listening to Taking Back Sunday and Brand New, the three of you that know who those people are, there's a context behind those records. There's a context behind the creed and how they're discussing who Jesus is. So when it says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, this is a loaded, polemical statement that is being made to differentiate Christians from the people who are botching it up. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and they look to scripture to try to to promote this relationship between God the Father and Jesus. So they look at texts, especially in the New Testament, talk about Jesus as the beloved Son of God the Father, such as Jesus at his baptism where Jesus is baptized by John and the heavens rip open and God the Father says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. There's a a verbal affirmation of Jesus by God the Father. Something similar happens at the Transfiguration, which is where Jesus takes his three best friends, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they go to the mountain site. They're somewhere high up. And when they get there, Jesus becomes translucent almost, or he starts shining, and he's flanked by Elijah and Moses. And at some point in that story, God the Father says to Jesus, let me read it to you. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There's attestations throughout the New Testament where there's this relationship, this intimate relationship between God and between Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable of the wicked tenants. So there's a landowner who has a vineyard and he removes himself from that vineyard and puts some people in charge of the land. And every time the landowner sends someone there, the tenants are violent with them, beat them. In some instances, they even kill them. And then the the landowner thinks to himself, well, if I send my son, the one that I love, to to these people, certainly they will accept him. And this is a parable about Jesus and about his rejection by his fellow Jews. And we see this relationship between God and Jesus on full display throughout the New Testament. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. There's a context here where they're trying to stress it wasn't that Jesus was created or begotten. Jesus is eternal. And Jesus has been in relationship with God forever. He was begotten from the Father before all ages. And that's some very technical terms here with begotten from the Father. And really, it just means that they're in this deep-seated, intimate relationship with one another. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's begotten. He's not made Arius. He's not created. He's not uh, someone that came into existence. And he is someone who has the same essence of the Father. Again, another technical term that's used here to, to link Jesus and God. So in Philippians, we kind of see a picture of this, and I'll skip ahead to the relevant parts. It says, though he was in the form of God, this is Jesus, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. Jesus was fully God, completely of the same essence as his Father continues, therefore God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus everyone in heaven on earth and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, stick with me here because this is actually very important. We're thinking about the core theological truths of Christianity This is the stuff that we claim we believe. And this is the stuff that we should have some idea of how it's working together. And I understand that when we're talking about the Trinity, when we're talking about three distinct persons in one being, Eyes can start to glaze over, and we can have a hard time understanding what is going on, and I am with you in that, but I want you to see at least some representations of what this looks like. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit, and together they are completely unified. Three but one. They are co-eternal. There was not a point when one began to exist. They have all existed together from all time. They are co-equal It is not as though God the Father is up here and Jesus is down here and the Spirit is down here. They are working together in complete and perfect harmony. They are in relationship with one another. When people talk about creation and people being here, it's it's often described as an outflow of this relationship that God has with Jesus and the Spirit, and that's why we are here to, to partake of some of that in whatever way we're able to do. There's a relationship, an ongoing eternal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is why when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is like the first time in all time when there's a fracture in that relationship. This is why that's a weighty moment, not just because he took the nails and he got beat and because he was getting ready to die, it's because there was a fracture in the relationship with the Father. Each of these three, they have different jobs. The technical term for this is the economic trinity. They're each doing different things, but they're working in unison. They're working unified, and they're all of the same essence. They're completely divine, and they are linked together. This is what is behind the creed, and this is why it's important at this time in the fourth century to identify who Jesus was and to talk about his divinity. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, for the folks in the room that think about these things on some occasion, there's a question that will come up as you're pontificating on these three in one, and you ask yourself, how does this happen? One scholar says, the proper understanding is far from explained in the creed, but instead is simply confessed as a mystery. Jesus is God. How can this be? It is a mystery. He goes on to say that these two paradoxical truths that God is God and Jesus is God, they are held together in tension and they are confessed boldly. And this is where I want to leave us today. Living in the mystery, living in the tension, and still proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. Perhaps not understanding all the ins and the outs of what that looks like and how. Perhaps not understanding all this jargon about ontological subordination and chronological subordination and the Arian heresy and all these very technical things that threaten to undo the core tenets of the Christian faith. But as I was thinking through this phrase here, this is emblematic of where most of us are. When we talk about God and we talk about Jesus and we talk about salvation and the spirit and we talk about what's gonna happen next, we have to, in some ways, appeal to the fact that we are living in mystery, in this great tension. Yet, as Christians, we still proclaim Jesus is Lord, and for some of you as you're sitting here, that's not satisfying, that's not good enough. I want reasons, I want logic, I want rationale, I want all these things that can make sense of what's going on in my faith and in my life. I was talking to somebody before the service and said, man, I really don't like how this conclusion, I don't like where it's going, and he said, maybe, maybe it's not, maybe you shouldn't have a conclusion. A lot of times in life, we are left without a conclusion. And if you think about the state of the world in which we live right now, and we see the things that are happening in Tulsa and Charlotte and all around us, and we see the things that are causing strife within our community and within our country, and we see the things that are happening, we're living in the midst of tension. We're living in the midst of unknown. We're living, for a lot of us, we're living in the midst of fear. And I want to suggest to you and to us, this is where we begin to stand and we say, we believe. As a community, we believe. And the beauty of this is at times, the we that's sitting next to you might be at a different place where you are and believe On your behalf, they might be the ones that can spur you on to continue in this faith relationship that we have with Jesus where we're trying to wrap our brains around things that are completely complex and we just default to Paul saying it's a mystery and we have no idea how to comprehend the vast riches of who God is. But I, what I want us to see maybe today in the midst of your own personal chaos, in the midst of your own lives, in the midst of the things that are holding you back or the midst of the things that you are struggling with or suffering through or perhaps even in the oppression and the difficulty that you have in your life, that in the midst of the mystery and in the midst of the tension, I believe that there is hope and there is beauty when we can say Jesus Christ is Lord. And in whatever small way, Jesus Christ is in control and Jesus Christ is on the throne and Jesus Christ is true God from true God. It's jargon, I know, but when we focus our lives around these truths, that we don't serve one who is less than or somewhat diminished. We serve one who is powerful and good loving and present, even in the midst of the mystery and even in the midst of the tension. My hope this evening is that we begin to claim we believe together as a community and as individuals holding on to that truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that what he offers us is hope. What he grants to us is forgiveness. What we're able to receive from him is mercy and peace. Even in the midst of mystery, even in the midst of the tension that you bring in with you through these doors, Jesus Christ is and will always be Lord. Let's pray. God, there is a depth to this faith that we do not often understand. There is a depth to your person and your work and the things that you're about that we don't always understand, but allow us to claim the words of that confession that we prayed earlier, that we would love the things that you love, that we would center our lives around even the small understanding that we have of who you are, a God that cares about the folks on the margins and the outskirts, a God who cares about reconciliation and redemption, a God who cares about the poor and the oppressed. May we, as we follow you, become a people who emulate those ideals. God, where our wisdom is foolishness, may you still be present. May you in the midst of mystery and tension help us to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives and of this world and that he is up to something. And may we partner with you in your great work of restoration. God, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for what you've done in our lives and help us not to forsake that or to forget that but help us to cling to it even when the night is dark and light seems far away. God, we ask that in the next few moments you would help us to understand your son, that you would be present with us and that you would help us to leave here empowered and encouraged to do your work. And we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.